All right, well, um, we are uh, walking our way through the book of Nehemiah this morning, and uh, if you have been gone or you are just visiting us for the first time, we are almost done. But don't worry, I promise I'll catch you up before we dive in, and uh, you won't be lost, I promise. We'll, we'll get her squared away here. So, book of Nehemiah, like every other book in the Bible, uh, is really ultimately a story about God, and the story that we see about God in the book of Nehemiah is, is about all about telling us and revealing to us how God is a God who is faithful and sovereign to keep his promises. And what you see happening throughout the story is that God uses this man named Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of promises that he's made to his people to forgive them and redeem them and to uh, restore them and to once again cause them to be a community of people who will live for the praise of his glory, which is the thing that they were always meant to, to be and to do. And so we saw in the first half of that story, in the chapters one through six, how we meet this guy named Nehemiah who's serving as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He's a Jewish exile who's living in Persia, serving as the cupbearer to this great king. And he gets this report about the sad state of Jerusalem and its walls and how God's people living there are uh, in great distress because the walls are broken down and destroyed by fire. And they've been that way for over over a century. And although this wasn't new information to Nehemiah, what happens is that God causes it to hit him in a new way, and his heart breaks over the reality that the state of Jerusalem and the people living there are ultimately proclaiming a message of shame and disgrace about God himself. And, and so because Nehemiah uh, reveres God's name and loves God's people, uh, he knows he needs to do something about it. And so he spends a couple of months praying and planning. And then he goes to the king of Persia and asks him to uh, let him go, take a bunch of time off work and to support the work that's going. And miraculously this, this, miraculously, this pagan king says yes to everything Nehemiah asks for. And so with the support of the king and obviously of God, what we see is that Nehemiah heads to Jerusalem. He rallies the people there to work on rebuilding the walls. And in spite of all kinds of opposition and threats, threats, they do just that. And we read the end of chapter 6, how after 52 short days, the walls had been rebuilt. These walls that had lain uh, broken down and burnt with fire for 140 plus years are now rebuilt. And you would think that the completion of the walls would kind of be the climax of the story, right? Like that's where you bust out the streamers, the balloons, right? There's at least some kind of party, right? They didn't have pizza, so maybe something similar, right? Whatever it is. But no, that's not, you see it just kind of as a matter of fact. The walls are rebuilt and they keep moving on because the reality is, is that Nehemiah's goal from the very beginning was never just about rebuilding the walls of God's city. It was always ultimately about rebuilding the community of God's people because from the very beginning, you see that it wasn't just the state of Jerusalem's walls that God intended to reflect and reveal his character and nature. It was the attitudes and the actions of the people that lived within those walls. And, and so rebuilding the, the walls, or rebuilding the people of God, rather, into a community that reflects and reveals the glory of God and, and, and shows his goodness to the world, that's what the second half of the book of Nehemiah is really all about. And we saw how that kind of began in chapter 8, where that work begins with reestablishing the word of God in its rightful place as the highest authority in the lives of the people in the community. And as they're moving back into their newly refortified city, they decide the most important thing they should be doing is gathering together for worship and to hear the Bible taught. And so uh, as they, uh, they ask their Ezra, their priest, and their pastor to read and teach God's word to them, and what you see happens is as they're 
hearing God's word read and taught and explained to them for the first time in a long time, what happens is you see the people begin to weep. And they're not weeping because the poetry is so great or moving, but they're broken-hearted tears because what's happening is that they are realizing all of the ways that their attitudes and their actions are out of line with God's word and his ways. And, and what's happening is they're, they're experiencing godly sorrow. They're being convicted of their sin and they're rightly sensing the weight of their rebellion against God and, and they're seeing the, the magnitude of that reality. But what's so important that we saw is that their godly sorrow doesn't lead them to sadness or regret. What happens is it leads them to this life-giving, genuine repentance. We saw, in, and that's what chapters 9 and 10 are all about. We're going to be in chapter 10 this morning, but we saw last week in chapter 9 how repentance is really kind of like a, this two-part process where it begins first with confession, right? The longest recorded prayer in the Bible we saw in Nehemiah 9 happening is the people, they're recounting their story. And throughout the story, what they keep reminding themselves of is how God has been repeatedly over and over again, how he's been faithful and just and righteous and good and how he has acted rightly while they have acted wickedly and rebelliously and hard-heartedly. And so they keep reminding themselves of these realities. And what's happening is that what they're doing is that throughout this prayer of confession is that they're, they're confessing their sin. They're not trying to hide it. They're not trying to explain it away. They're not trying to shift the blame on it. They are owning it, all of it, right? And just to be clear, it's not just their bad behavior that they're owning. They're, they're confessing to God the reality of their hard-heartedness, their rebellious hearts towards him, which is, which is really the source of all the problems in the first place. And so we saw in chapter 9 that their prayer of confession was a really good step in the right direction. But as we're going to see this morning, true repentance, while it always begins with confession, it never stops there. True repentance does not stop with confession because repentance and confession, they're often confused as the same thing, but they're not. What I want to show you this morning as we look at the passage that follows their humble prayer of confession is what I want to show you is that true repentance it's not merely about confessing our sins before God or agreeing with God about that, that our attitudes and actions are at odds with his word and his ways. It's not just about admitting we're headed in the wrong direction. True repentance is about actually turning around and heading in a new direction. It's about, in other words, true repentance looks like turning away from sin and turning towards God it looks like choosing to walk in new patterns of obedience instead of continuing to walk in sin and rebellion. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning, see how God's word, what it has to say to us. So God, thanks for your word this morning. God, as we again talk about what repentance looks like, we just humbly ask God that you would allow your word and your spirit to speak to us through your word and through me. And God, um, I don't have any authority to bring about change or, or any power to do that, but you do, and your word does. And so I ask humbly, God, would you cause us to be a people who are characterized by true repentance over our sin, that we would turn from our sin and turn towards you, God, that we would do it in joy and humility, God, and for all of that, for any of that to happen, God, we need you to change it in us. And so we ask, God, for our good and for your glory that you would, we pray. Amen. 
Amen. All right, now, before we uh, begin reading our passage, just a quick heads up. It might appear like I'm going to be skipping a bunch of verses in our passage this morning, and that is because I am going to be skipping a bunch of verses, right? Um, we're going to start in chapter 9, verse 38, and we're going to skip ahead to 10, chapter 10, verse 28, because the first 27 verses of chapter 10 is a list of 84 names. And the reality is, I know you have all been thoroughly impressed already by my ability to read Hebrew names, and at some point, it really is just showing off, right? And so out of humility, right, what I'm going to do is skip reading all those names so I don't get a big head, right? And we're going to just move on, okay? All right, good. The first service thought that joke was way funnier than it is. You're going to need to pull it together, people, okay? All right, good. Okay. All right, here we go. Chapter 10, or chapter 9, verse 38 begins this way. So in view of all this, again, there, that's in view of chapter 9, in view of remembering the, their story, and in view of remembering all the ways that God had been faithful in the midst of their wickedness and rebellion, right? They say, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of our God, the law of our God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands and regulations and decrees of the Lord our God. And we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. And when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. And we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our Lord and for the bread that's set out on the table and for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings and for the offerings on the Sabbaths and the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals and for the holy offerings and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, we have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. And we also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and uh, and every fruit tree, as it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of our trees, and all our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. And a priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain and new wine and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering, the priests and the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. All right, so a lot going on in our passage. Let's see if we can't make some sense out of what's going on with these things that they're committing to do, right? 
We saw in, in chapter uh, 8 how what's happening is that the people, in response to hearing God's word read, they're experiencing godly sorrow over their sin. And what we see in chapter 9 is that it leads them to this humble prayer of confession and this hopeful plea for God to, again, show mercy and forgiveness to them. But, but it doesn't stop there. We see in chapter 10 that their repentance, it begins with godly sorrow and confession, but it, it doesn't stop there. It actually leads them to take this concerted effort towards walking in new patterns of obedience instead of merely just continuing on in patterns of sin. And so to be abundantly clear and so that nobody forgets about the new direction that they are heading as a community, what they do is they, they put it all in writing, all the changes that they're committing to make as a community and as individuals, right? And on behalf of everyone, their leaders, they affix their seals to it or they sign this document, right? And they're saying that as a community, we are going to head in a new direction together. This is the, chapter nine was, this is the direction we were heading. And chapter 10 is, here's the new direction that we are going to be going as a community. And it's an about face. It's a 180 from where they were going before. And as we look at this covenant that God's people make with God and with one another, there's a whole lot for us to learn about what characterizes a true repentance. We see so much about that here. And the first thing I think is that we see is that true repentance is characterized first off by a wholehearted submission to God and his word. It's characterized by a wholehearted submission to God and his word. You see, sin at its root is not just bad behavior. Sin at its root is really mutinous rebellion against God. You see, the reality is that we want to be the ones that decide what is true and right and good. And we want to be the ones who are in charge and the ones who decide what should go and what doesn't, right? And we want to be king and, and we want to be God. And so what happens, each and every one of us, we reject at some point, God's, we reject God's good and right authority in our lives and we enthrone ourselves as God, right? And that's the essence of what sin really is. It's not just bad behavior, it's rebellion against God. And it leads to all kinds of wrong behavior, but our bad behavior is just a symptom of the deeper problem that we've rejected God's good rule and authority. And, and so since sin is rebellion against God and repentance is turning from sin back towards God, the reality then is, is, that, is that the way that you begin a process of repentance, right, is by is by, is by submitting yourself wholeheartedly to God. It's by rejecting an attitude of rebellion and instead taking on a posture of humility and submission and saying, God, you get to be in charge. And we see that happening. That's what the people are doing in verse 29. It reads this way. They say, they bound themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands and regulations and decrees of the Lord our God. What they're, what they're saying is that, God, we commit to walking in obedience to everything that you say. God, you, 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 not just some of what you say, all of it. You get to be king. You get to be God, right? Whatever you say goes. In other words, what they're saying is, God, we commit to letting you be God. And we're going to take ourselves off the throne and out of the position of highest authority. And we're going to say, God, you and your word, you are at the top. You're the one who's in charge. You're the one who rules and reigns, and we will submit to you. You are in charge, not us. You get to decide, God, what is right and true and good, not us. 
And the way that we know what God is like and what he thinks is right and true and good is through his word as he reveals himself to us. And so that's why what they say is that we're committing not just to, to obey God, they say we commit to follow his word, right? And so the people commit to obeying God's word, but it is so important that you notice this, so important that you see this. They're, they're not just committing to obeying the letter of the law. They're not just committing to obey the letter of the law. What you, what you read as you read their covenant, what you find is that, is that they're committing to obeying the very spirit of the law itself, right? Most of what they're committed to doing are, are things that God expressly outlines in the law that's given to Moses in Exodus and expounded on in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But there's a number of things that aren't expressly in there that we see the people committing to in, in this covenant, right? For example, the, the law outlines the importance of God's people practicing the Sabbath, right, which was the day of worship for God's people in the Old Testament. And it was a day in which they could not work at all. They were supposed to refrain from all kind of labor. And it was meant to be a, a, not just a restful day for them, but it was meant to be a way in which they practiced an active dependence on God and a trust in in him and a reliance on him, right? But it doesn't say anything, right? The law says a lot about what you should not do, right? Not working on the Sabbath, but it doesn't say anything about whether or not you should buy merchandise from other people who are working on the Sabbath, maybe that aren't Jews, right? And what they realize for them is that they commit to not even buying things from other people who are working on the Sabbath. And the reason for them is because what's going on is they're not just trying to keep the letter of the law. What they realize for them is that going to the market and doing business on the Sabbath, that, that was, for them, that was defeating the whole purpose of it, right? It was supposed to be a day of rest and of worship, not of business. And so they say, you know what, God, even though your word doesn't say this, we're going we're gonna to commit to not doing that because we know the road that that leads down for us. And that history is well and clear. And so what's happening is you see is that their true repentance is marked by a wholehearted, unqualified submission to God and his word, right? They want to worship God, not, not just by the letter of it, but they want God to have their whole hearts. They're not just trying to just just make sure they dot the I's and cross the T's. They're saying, God, we want to give you everything. We want to obey you in everything. We want our hearts to be yours. And we want to give everything over to you. But while true repentance is characterized by a submission that is wholehearted and kind of all-encompassing in scope, the reality is, is that the second thing we see is about true repentance is that it is often, if not always, specific in application. It is all-encompassing in scope, but it's specific in its application. As you look through the list of the commitments, what you see is that there are specific ways in which the community was committing to turning away from sin and to turning back towards worshiping God, right? Likely, a lot of these things were specific things that they were feeling convicted about, right? Verse 30, we see that they promised not to have their children marry people who didn't worship God, right? The reality is, is that that was not only something that had caused a ton of problems throughout Israel's history as people married others who worshiped different gods and led people away to worshiping all different kinds of gods. But what you see happening is that was also a very real and present problem in this community. The book of Ezra is the kind of like the prequel to Nehemiah, and this whole second half of the book of Ezra is him basically dealing with this. Where all the, the people, the exiles who have returned back, they've just started marrying everybody who's not God's people. 
And he's confronting them about this reality and about how God's word reminds them over and over and over again not to do that because it always ends badly every time. Verse 31, they promise to keep the Sabbath and the year of Jubilee, which is what they're talking about with regards to canceling debts and all that kind of stuff. And again, the reality of what they're promising is about saying, God, we're going to trust you. We're going to obey you, and our obedience to you is an active, on, like this is our outward way of saying, God, we trust you. It does not seem like a great idea in an agrarian society to not work the field for a year, right? Like if your whole income is about that, that does not seem like a wise idea. And yet God lays that out for people. It doesn't seem wise to just forgive everybody's debts after seven years. And what's happening is God's people are saying, God, even even if it doesn't seem like it makes sense to everyone around us, what we're going to say is that we're going to trust God that your ways and your word actually lead to the best life of all. We're going to actively choose with our actions to say yes to you and to believing and trusting that your ways actually bring about the life we're looking for. Because our ways certainly have not done it. And so it's a humble repentance they have. We see in verses 32 through 39 that they promise to provide financially and with time and resources everything that's needed for, uh, basically for worship services to happen, right? For the temple to function as it was meant to. And so they're saying, we 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 are gonna provide for everything. And again, it's not just the letter of the law, it's the spirit of it. For example, they talk about how every family has taken taken lots to say when they're gonna bring wood to to the temple so it can be burned. And there's no law, about every family having to bring wood for that, but the the command in in the law is that the the fire at the temple should always be burning, and they realize that without wood, there's not going to be any fire. And so they say as a community, say, we want to obey God. We want to obey you in everything. We want to worship you as you have decided for us to do it. We want to honor you as you have seen fit for it to be done. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take every effort to make sure that we can obey your word. And it's not this legalism that they're just making up a ton of rules so that they can do stuff. What's happening is that they're they're giving their whole hearts over to God, but they're doing it in specific ways. They're saying, God, you can have everything. Everything's yours. And specifically, we know you're asking for this. And so repentance is both all-encompassing in scope, but specific in its application. I think the third thing that we see about true repentance is that it is often costly. It is often costly. Not allowing their children to marry people who weren't a part of the the Jewish community, that is not going to help you climb the social and economic ladders in the Persian Empire. It's not going to help you, right? One of the primary ways that communities rose the kind of social and economic ladders in those days was by intermarrying with other people of influence who had power and authority. And they're saying, God, we're not going to do that. We're going to obey you instead. And not working or even doing business with those who were working on the Sabbath, right? That would not have been financially a beneficial thing for their own businesses, right? It would not have been like, oh, this is going to go so great, right? We're missing a whole day of work. No, it would have been costly for them to do that. And giving of their money and of their property, of their first fruits of everything that they had, giving of their time and their resources to support the work of ministry and worship happening in their community, that would have been financially costly for them. It wasn't free. It wasn't cheap. See, true repentance, 
True repentance says, God, whatever the cost, you are worth obeying. God, whatever the cost, you're worth it. And the life you call us to, even though it feels costly oftentimes, it actually brings about our good and our joy. And we're going to trust you enough to obey you with it, God. So true repentance is, it's all-encompassing in scope. It's specific in application. It is often costly. And the last thing, again, this is not the, the one A to Z of repentance, but just a few important things we see in our passage. I think, lastly, we often see that true repentance often requires accountability. See, this, they don't just commit to obeying God as individuals, right? They do it as a community, right? It's not just this personal, quiet, inner thing, right? They make a big deal out of it, and they say, God, we're, we're going to write down all the things as a community that we want to commit to, the new direction that we are headed, because what they realize is, is that following God and obeying God, turning away from sin and turning towards God is hard. It is hard to do. Anyone who says it's easy is lying to you, Right? It's always hard because our hearts, are, our hearts are stubborn and we want the things we want. It is difficult, right? And the reality is that you need a community of people who are going to encourage you, who are going to call you to faithfulness amongst one another. You need a community of people who often might even be willing to graciously confront you when you are, again, heading the wrong direction and in love calling you back to faithfulness and repentance. You need accountability. Really is true. And so true repentance we see in our passages characterized by a turning away from sin and a turning towards God that begins with this wholehearted, unqualified submission to God and his word that's specific in application, that's often costly, and that usually requires accountability. But in outlining what true repentance is, I think it's also important to highlight what it isn't. There's a whole lot of kind of counterfeit versions of repentance that we kind of try to pass off as the real thing. And they're not. And it's just so important that you see this. And the first kind of counterfeit repentance I just want to point out is that, is that true repentance is not mere confession. Mere confession is a counterfeit version of repentance. You see, true repentance must begin with confession, with admitting and agreeing with God that our actions and attitudes are out of line with his word and his ways. But if it stops there, if it stops with just admitting that you're wrong, but never actually turning around and never actually heading a new direction, then that's not repentance. See, the reality is, is that both what your words say and what your actions say, they both matter. And if what you do totally undermines what you say, it doesn't matter, does it? Everybody knows that. See, we can't just have an admittance that we're headed the wrong direction. True repentance is characterized by actually heading a new direction and beginning to walk in new patterns of obedience. Oftentimes, I think mere confession is a result of people experiencing not godly sorrow, but worldly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he differentiates between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And, and the reality is that worldly sorrow, right, is, is when we just feel guilty or shameful about our sin. It's when we just don't like the consequences, because sin always has consequences in our lives and in our communities, and we just don't like the consequences, so we want to get out from under that. Or, or we just we try to atone for our own sin or assuage our own guilt, but we don't actually change. Like the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that kind of sorrow, worldly sorrow, it just always leads to death. 
There's no transformation. There's no renewal. Worldly sorrow often leads us to just mere confession and not true repentance. And it's true repentance that actually brings life and leads to joy. And so true repentance is not mere confession. Number two, nor is true repentance just partial repentance. We saw in our passage how the repentance of these people, it was a wholehearted choice. They were saying, God, you get to be king of everything. We will obey everything you say, not some of it, all of it, God. You get to be king. You get to be in charge. A lot of times what we tend to say to God is, God, okay, so I feel your conviction in these areas of my life, but like, uh, and, and I'll take ownership of some of that, right? Like, yeah, some of it, totally my fault, right? I, I'll own that, right? But this whole other bunch of these things, that is not mine, right? The anger that I'm experiencing, that's not my fault. Somebody else is making me angry, right? The, the greed that I keep running into, right? That's just like our consumer culture. It's just, it's just I'm in that, those weeds, right? That's the reason for that. Or, or this insatiable need for us to have control over all the variables in our lives, right? Instead of letting God be in control. It's, like, it's just the way I was raised, right? And so we say, God, uh, okay, I'll, I'll take ownership of some of it. But this other stuff, that's not on, that's not on me. Right? That's, that, that's not on me. Somebody else is going to have to deal with that. Or, or what, what happens is sometimes we say, God, I feel your conviction in these areas, but I am not ready to give you this. God, I'll, I'll turn around on some of the things that you're convicting me about, but not everything. God, you can have my sexuality, my marriage, but God, you cannot have my money. That's mine. I'll do with it as I see fit. God, you, you can have my weekends, Right, I'll come to church, I'll do, I'll do the right things on the weekends, but the weekdays, those are mine. I'll do with that time as I see fit. We, you see, what we do when we, when we, when we do the false, the, the, the counterfeit version of repentance that's just partial repentance, well, what we're actually saying is that we're still God, right? And that we are glad to take the real God's suggestions under advisement, Right? But that in the end, like we're really going to be the ones who still have the final authority and the final say. We're like, nah, we're going to do some, not all. No, I, I'm, I still hold the final call. We would never phrase it like that, but when we say, God, I'll give you some, not everything, that's what we're doing. We're saying, God, I, I will still function as the highest authority, not you. Church, I, I need you to hear this. God is either king of everything or he is king of nothing. He's king of everything, or he is king of nothing. And partial repentance is still rebellion. Partial repentance is still rebellion. It might look like it's headed the right direction, but we're saying, God, I will still be king. In the end, I'm still the one who's in charge. It's a counterfeit version of repentance. And so true repentance is not mere confession. It is not also partial repentance. Third, true repentance is not, uh, I'll call it, and I think Tim Keller refers to it this way, but it's not religious repentance, right? See, religious repentance looks a lot like true repentance, but the motives are all messed up, right? See, religious repentance is when we try to change in order to get something from God, right? We're trying to change our behavior or whatever it is in order to get something from God. We say, God, I'll repent. I will start to obey in order for you so that you'll bless me. Or God, I'll, I'll repent. I'll turn around on sin so that you'll give me the job or the spouse or the house or the kids that I am looking for. I'll, I'll obey so that you will give me the thing I am after. God, I'll repent even so that this ministry thing that I'm doing will go well, that it will be successful, right? And it looks really good on the outside, doesn't it? 
It looks spiritual. It looks, it looks like it has the right trappings of things. God, we want to obey. But see, the reality is that God looks right through our external things and he sees into our hearts. Church, here's the reality. God is good. He does not need to be manipulated into giving you something good. And God is sovereign. He cannot be manipulated anyways. He is good and sovereign. He cannot and does not need to be manipulated. And so religious repentance, it is a counterfeit version of repentance. It just leads to death like all the others. And lastly, number four, true repentance is not merely behavior modification. True repentance is not merely behavior modification. Yes, true repentance absolutely involves real life change, not just new thinking, right? But new attitudes and new actions, walking in new patterns of obedience. But it's so important that you see this. True repentance is not just external behavior modification. True repentance is ultimately about a change of worship, which leads to a change in our lives. The reality is is that Whatever you worship, whatever you love most, the thing that has the controlling influence in your life, it controls the actions and behaviors that you have. And if we worship God, if we love him most, then what happens is our attitudes and our actions will be controlled by him. And if we worship something else, then our actions and our attitudes will be controlled by whatever that is. Maybe it's the pursuit of power or comfort, or approval, or control, or whatever it might be, and all the ways those things manifest themselves. You always do what you love. My son Caleb loves playing video games with me. I don't ever have to convince him. Right? It's not like, all right, Caleb, let's work on it. It's like, let's, let's work, like, let me convince you all the ways why playing video games is fun and why we should do it. No, like you get halfway the invite out, and he's already running down the stairs, Right? he loves doing it. You don't have to convince him to do that because he already loves it. See, the reality is is that that our actions are always a result of the things that we love. They're always a result of the things that we love. And so the question that we have to ask as God's people as we think about being characterized by true repentance is not just how to be a people who are changed on the outside, but to be a people who are changed from the inside out. How do you change what you worship? How do you change what you love? Right? You can't just, like, if your favorite color is green, you can't just decide it's blue. Right? Like how, do you, how do you change this internal thing that produces the external behaviors? How do you change what you love? Well, the famous Puritan preacher, Thomas Chalmers, he says that what we really need is the expulsive power of a new affection. In a sermon I often quote, because it is super good, right? He says it this way. He says, neither you nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Hear this. And if that new affection be the love of God, then it will draw the heart of the sinner towards him. Church, here's what he's saying. is that the only way you change what you love is when you get a superior love. You can't just stop loving something. You have to start loving something else more. 
And he says, if that new affection be the love of God for you, he'll drive out all the other affections. See, that's what's happening for this community of believers here. In Nehemiah chapter 9. In chapter, chapter 9, they're just remembering their story. They're reminding themselves about how the countless ways that they have been wicked and sinful and rebellious and all the ways that they have run from God and turned from him and hated him. And yet, in the midst of all of it, at their very worst, what you see them keep recounting is how God over and over and over and over again is faithful and good and merciful and just, that he doesn't abandon them, but he forgives them, that he doesn't run from them, but that he runs towards them, and that when they're in the middle of sin, they cry out for rescue, he always hears them. And so their repentance here is not in order to get God to do something for them. What they get is that God has already loved them beyond measure. And their commitments that they are making here, their repentant attitudes and actions, they're not to get God something from God. They're in response to all God has already done for them. See, church, that's the way it is. They are seeing God's incredible mercy and grace made known to them throughout their story. And we get it even better because we have Jesus. We see that God himself came in the person of Jesus not just to forgive our sins, but to take the penalty for our sin on himself. And in the midst of our endless faithlessness to him, in the midst of our inability to obey, in the midst of our abject wickedness and opposition to him, he comes to rescue us. And it's only when you see the reality of God's love for you that you will have the kind of expulsive affection that drives out a desire to pursue sin and instead woos your heart with a love for God that longs to obey him. That's the only way you do it. There's this incredible hymn that John Newton wrote. He also wrote Amazing Grace. This is so powerful, these words. It, it expresses the good news of the gospel that enables repentance. It goes this way. He says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child. and duty into choice. Church, that's what true repentance looks like. A people who are not just trying to fix the outside, who are not just trying to conform our external behavior, behaviors, but a church who is so captivated by the beauty of Jesus and, and therefore are filled with a love for him that endlessly draws us towards him. That's what true repentance is motivated by. That's what it looks like, church. The reality is, is that you need that kind of a motivation because you will mess up and you will fail. And the things you turn around on, you're gonna have to turn around on again. And unless God's love for you is beautiful and captivating, you'll either be full of self-righteousness or guilt and shame. 
But if the gospel's beautiful, you get to be honest with God about your sin. And you get to be grateful once again for all he's done for you. And it empowers, it makes you love him more. And it makes you run to him instead of away from him. That's the gospel, church. The gospel is the thing that empowers a true repentance. And that's why we remember the gospel every week when we're taking communion together. That's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves about all that God has done on our behalf, about his great love for us, that he, instead of abandoning us, instead came to pay the penalty for our sin by giving his own body and blood to be broken and shed on our behalf so that you and I might be through faith forgiven and cleansed and adopted and loved. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. But what it does is it's a chance for us to remember So that in remembering his incredible love for us, his grace, his mercy made known to us in Jesus, that we would once again be filled with the expulsive power of a new affection that draws our hearts towards him and that is motivated out of love to pursue him with our whole lives. And so as we sing and as we worship this morning in song, I want to encourage you, if you put your trust in Jesus, go back and take communion. If he is your savior and your Lord, if he is your forgiver and your king, then go back and take communion. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to him. And you can, there's two tables, one on the left and one on the right. You can dip the bread and the juice or take one of the packs back to your seats. But you don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not, if you are here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and whether or not you want him to be your forgiver or whether or not you want to submit to him as king, I just want you to know you are so welcome here. And your process is welcome here and your doubts are welcome here and your questions and the middle of it, you are welcome here. But I would encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that is wholeheartedly submitted to him. If this morning you want to surrender to him as king and trust him as savior, then, then go back and take communion. Do it as a joyful celebration and remembrance of what you have trusted in by faith. But But if not, I'd encourage you, talk with God. Wherever you're at this morning, talk with God. What is it that he is calling you to repent of? What is it that he is calling you to turn around on and head back towards him with? Maybe it's some of the things that, similar to some of the things that the people in our passage were experiencing, right? As New New Testament people, we are not under the old covenant law, and so it's not like we are trying to apply by the letter of the law all of the things that we saw in their passage, but maybe you are sensing a conviction in similar ways about wanting to give your whole heart to God, or maybe your finances, or, or your relationships, or whatever else it might be. There's probably, some, there's probably all kinds of things that God's calling us to turn around on. Ask him, what is it? But then I would encourage you, ask him, what version of counterfeit repentance are you most prone towards? What version of counterfeit repentance is your heart most prone towards? Are you tempted towards mere confession, towards just behavior modification? Are you tempted towards partial repentance? Are you tempted towards religious repentance? Whatever it might be, ask God to help you see the proclivities of your heart but also ask him to give you the expulsive power of a new affection. As you see the gospel as good news that gives life, ask him to help you see it for what it really is so that we might be characterized by a true repentance and a life of worship and obedience unto him. Let's pray. God, we love you.
not because uh, we loved you first, but because you loved us when we hated you. God, when we were wicked and rebellious and sinful people, you have come running after us. That's your story of, uh, of your people throughout the whole Bible from beginning to end. And so, God, we ask that you might, in response to the good news of the gospel, cause us to be a people who are characterized by a true repentance and a turning from sin, one that is wholehearted in scope and specific in application, even though it's costly, even though it requires accountability. God, and keep us from the false counterfeit versions of, of repentance that just lead to death. Give us new life because of you. Power us to be your people who live for you, we pray. Amen.